lover of all things lit, professional reviewer, recommender, book blogger. I am your host, Lloyd Russell, aka The Book Sage, and you're listening to Lit with Lloyd, courtesy of KCAT Radio. Welcome to Lit with Lloyd. I am your host, Lloyd Russell, and our guest today, thanks to KCAT TV, is Chandra Ingram. Chandra has written two books about India that I know you are going to want to hear about. Welcome, Chandra, and let's get to it. We don't want to keep our listeners waiting. Thank you so much for having me. So you came to our book club um, a little under three and a half years ago, and we were all amazed at what we read and what you told us. So uh, let's, let's talk about that. Tell us about the two books that you've written, and uh, then we'll talk about how old you were and what you did in order to research the books. So my first two novels, Freedom Child and Freedom Lost, are books about child slave labor and human trafficking in India. They're fictional novels, but they're based on the true realities that are happening every single day. And my first book is focused around two characters. The first character is a 13-year-old girl named Mukti, who is enslaved on a quarry in Bangalore, India. And her and her family of five have been working there paying off a debt of about $30 for five years and will probably be working there for the rest of their lives because they are surrounded by people who don't speak the same language and they are far away from home. And unfortunately, her story is very real. And even though she's a fictional character, I based her story and her friends and her families on the lives of many women and children that I met and interviewed in India. Uh, and your second book, Freedom Lost, um, how did that carry on from, from uh, Freedom uh, Child? So actually, Freedom Lost was supposed to be a part of the first book. Um, when it comes to modern slavery, there's just too many types of slave labor. Uh, there's too many stories to tell. And so one of my biggest challenges was narrowing down how many characters and how many stories I told. So originally, Freedom Child actually had three storylines and three different characters. Um, Mukti, who is enslaved on a quarry. Ruchita, who ends up being sold in human trafficked. And then two boys who are brothers who end up getting lost from home and enslaved on a farm or agricultural area um, and they are stuck there because of debt bondage but I had a literary agent read my original draft and she said this book is way too long no one's going to read it you should probably split it into two and so the boys are now the sequel to Freedom Child. Okay so let's <laughs> Let's get into the most amazing part of all this. Tell us how old you were when you researched the book and how you went about it. So I began writing Freedom Child when I was 12 years old. Uh, it actually started off as a one-page homework assignment in my English class. My teacher said, if you were to write a book about anything, write the first page. And for some reason, as a 12-year-old, I thought I would write about child slave labor in India probably not a topic most 12-year-olds are interested in, but my family had just moved back from India, where we had lived for four years. And when I lived there at my international school, a guest speaker came by and he had dedicated his life to taking children out of slavery. 
And this was the first time I'd ever heard about this issue. Um, I thought that slavery had been abolished after the Civil War. I didn't know that there was such thing as modern slavery and that it still happens in every single country around the world, despite being abolished by every single country. And when I moved back to the States, I would have casual conversations, usually with my friend's parents, since my friends were younger, um, and they would uh, ask me about my experiences and what I learned, and I would somehow always end up on the conversation of this huge issue, and no one knew about it. And it really just spoke to me because I think the main reason that it's such a prevalent issue today is because there's such a lack of awareness. And so I thought if I can write a book, I wanna spread awareness about this issue and educate people so that hopefully we can all come together to make a change. A pretty audacious goal for a 12 year old, but I thoroughly enjoyed writing these stories and researching them. Um, and my English teacher, Mrs. Sunner and Mrs. Halla encouraged me to continue writing that one page into a short story, which I entered into a contest, never heard back from, <laughs> but I enjoyed writing and researching it so much that I kept writing until it turned into a 400 page novel. And I came across a lot of obstacles writing at such a young age. Because it's such a contentious issue, most people didn't believe the stories I was telling. A lot of the realities of slavery are really intense, especially with sex trafficking. And to talk about five-year-old girls, 13-year-old girls being sold up to 30 times a day, mm. people don't want to believe it. And because I was so young, they just pushed the issue aside and told me I was lying or I didn't do my research. And so, by the time I was in high school, I begged my mom, I need to go back to India and really get on the ground and find out these facts for myself. No more reading books, no more searching on articles online. I need to conduct these interviews myself so that people will believe me. And one summer we reached out to at least 50 organizations begging to let me come and stay with them and learn from them and they all said, a 15-year-old girl, you're a liability. There's no way we can do it. And I began to lose hope, thinking that no one would let um, just let me come and visit and learn from them, until finally an organization named Jivika emailed back and said, come on down, we would love to support your project of writing these books and sharing all of our knowledge with you. And so my mom and I hopped on a plane, we went back to Karnataka, which is where we lived um, for four years, and we spent about two weeks with this organization. And what Jivika does is the majority of the workers there were enslaved themselves, the majority through debt bondage. And they go back into these villages and um, they find people who are currently enslaved and they speak with them and they work with the government to try and help them get out of their situations. And in India, slavery is illegal. Debt bondage is illegal. But because a lot of these impoverished areas are uneducated, they don't know their rights. And so this organization, being as amazing as it is and having people who have been in those situations are able to go in and speak with them and spread awareness and work with the government to give them what they call a freedom certificate that is literally a certificate that says you are free, they cannot force you to work anymore. Um, and I was able to interview over 65 current and former slaves. I was able to visit these villages, a few quarries, um, a silk factory, 
And um, I remember the silk factory was particularly interesting because the slave owner was so excited to talk to an American and practice her English that she told us about everything that was going on. We actually got videos, we got interviews, we have photos. Um, maybe she figured it out a bit after we left what we were really doing there. We weren't just interested in how silk is being made, but it was just a really amazing experience and I was able to weave all of those stories and interviews into my books. Um, actually, if you read them, you'll see that there's a little footnote at the bottom sometimes that will tell you this is based off of a real story. Okay, I've read them and I certainly read the uh, footnotes. Um, since you just mentioned about uh, interviewing current as well as former slaves, do you happen to know if any of the current slaves at the time that you interviewed them have become free? That is a great question. And right after this, I'm going to reach out to Jivika and ask, because I still have all of their names and their stories uh, that I collected. And I remember one girl in particular, her name was Gayatri, and she was the same age as me when I interviewed her. And actually members from Jivika had to uh, drive her out on a moped and sneak her out because she wasn't allowed to leave the factory. And her story really touched me because we were the same age. It was just so heartbreaking to see such a different life for her. And she had severe memory loss and head trauma from being abused and beaten. And I know Jivika was working really, really hard to try and get her out of that situation. So of all of the stories I've heard, I would definitely want to follow up about hers, but I actually haven't followed up, so I don't quite know the situation now. Okay. Uh, listeners, uh, do you feel that perhaps you have not accomplished very much in your lives? <laughs> I mean, this is, this is absolutely unbelievable. Uh, tell us exactly what debt bondage is. How do people get into debt bondage? That's a great question. So debt bondage is essentially a fake contract that is created. It could be a loan as little as $30, such as my character Mukti. Um, but again, because a lot of these vulnerable populations are illiterate or uneducated, they don't understand that even though they probably paid off the debt within a few days or a few hours, they are stuck in these situations and they are forced to stay there. And because of high interest rates and things that they don't understand, that debt just increases into the point where they're working by force for the rest of their lives. Um, and a lot of these loans can be taken out because of um, medical reasons or in India, dowries are a big thing for marriages. So when families want to um, create marriages for their daughters, they have to pay large sum. And a lot of times they can't afford this. So they'll take a loan from the local landlord or a local businessman. Um, and they will have to pay off that loan and often get stuck in these situations where they are forced to work for them and aren't able to escape. And even if they fight for their rights and go to their local magistrate, um, India's judicial system is a bit more complicated than ours here in the US, um, there's also the issue of the caste system, which I talk about a lot more in my second book, Freedom Lost. The Dalits are the lowest of a caste. Um, it means the untouchables because they literally, people aren't allowed to touch them. They're seen as less than human. Mm. And the Dalit class is especially vulnerable. They're already excluded and isolated from society. And when they go and cry for help, 
the upper caste are usually those who work in the local government or law enforcement. And so they really don't have anyone fighting for them. And therefore, the entire system is against them from the get go. Wow. Uh, and this caste system, is, is, is it as strong now as it's always been? I mean, is the government, there's nobody in government that's, that's trying to, to, to champion them in any way? So that was when I began doing my research, it was definitely something I was interested in because to me, how could a caste system still be in place today? It just seems so archaic and outdated. And although the caste system was deeply ingrained in Indian society, even through British imperialism, um, it's still very prevalent in rural areas, not so much in urban areas, but um, just as we have quotas for filling government offices or positions in other countries, India is also trying to be more inclusive of all castes. Uh, I remember asking my mom, do you know what caste your family came from? And I forget which caste, but she, there's also millions and thousands of subcasts. Mm. Um, and it's just something you're born knowing. And actually one of my characters in Freedom Lost, that's something that he goes through in his thought process. He says, I was just born knowing I was a Dali. I don't remember when I learned what this was, but through his experience being stuck in a village that is primarily full of people being exploited because of their caste, he learns a lot more about the harsh realities that they face simply because of the caste they're born into. Were the, were the, the sex trafficking and slave labor, were those strong during British rule and did they just simply remain strong after independence? That's another great question. We currently around the world have more than 40 million slaves, more ever than in human history. And so it's not an issue that only India faces. Um, so I would say it's increased because the population has increased and since the pandemic has probably only gotten worse. Mm. Um, and the caste system that was in place during British imperialism definitely reinforced these, uh, the ability for people to be exploited. All right, we're gonna take a quick break and we'll be back in a minute. Thank you to the Los Gatos Community Foundation for their continued support of KCAT Public Media. Because of groups like the Los Gatos Community Foundation, KCAT has been able to inspire, educate, entertain, and inform our community through the magic of television and digital media for over 38 years. Thank you. Okay, and we're back. Um, if you've just come on, we're talking to Chandra Ingram and hearing an incredible story. Um, I've, I've heard the story. I mean, you, when you came to our book club uh, a little over three years ago, but it feels like the first time. It's, it's, it's an amazing, amazing story. Uh, when you did, were doing your research, and especially since you were finding ways to interview current slaves, were you ever in danger? That's a great question. Um, going into this trip, I don't think I ever asked myself that question. Even though so many organizations turned me away, it probably should have lit up a light bulb in my head, like maybe what I'm doing is dangerous. Um, and there's one particular situation that stands out to me. 
I was at a brick factory and the slave owners or whatever they called themselves were actually gone. And so we had a chance to sneak in and interview two men who were had been in bondage for about 10 years each. Both of them were paying off dowries for their daughters. Mm. And after the interview, we're taking photos. Uh, I had my iPad where we were recording everything. We hear that the slave owners returned and they can tell what we're doing. They know why we're there. They're furious. And so they come up to us. I don't speak Kannada, the local language of Karnataka. Have no idea what they're screaming at me, but I can tell they're very upset. And they're trying to take my iPad and they're shaking it and trying to break it because Whoa. that's where all of my evidence is. Yeah. And my mom and I, we just look at each other and uh, our driver who is also our translator is there and the Jivika members are there and they're just like, get to the van, go. And so we just sprint to the van while these men are screaming and chasing after us. Um, and at the time, I didn't think too much of it, but the man from Jivika told us that they had probably called for backup and it was good that we had gotten out of there in time. And I remember later telling my dad the story who didn't come on the trip with us because he's a six foot tall white male and would probably not blend in as easily <laughs> as my mom and I. Um, and he was like, what? I didn't realize it was this dangerous. I wouldn't have let you go. So I don't think any of us really thought about the gravity of it all, um, but it really put it in perspective for me just how dangerous it is for the men and the women in these situations because they are the ones who probably got the main consequences. I got out in time. I don't know what happened to them yeah, for speaking yeah, to me. Yeah. And I hope that they were okay, mm. but it just shows how hard it is. And some of the stories I heard, the bravery of some of these men and women who escaped, one man literally crossed three states to find his way back home walking. And another man who was unsuccessful the first time had literally crossed state borders and the slave owners' connections were so great that they had people watching in other states who found him, recognized him, and he got sent back, which is baffling to me, especially in a country as big as India with such an immense population. How could they possibly have such a big network? Um, but especially for women in human trafficking, because they have, they one, get such a big profit, but two, they've invested so much in these women that it's very, very hard for them to get out of these situations. And in my novel, Freedom Child, I kind of explain how hard it is to sneak into these brothels and how they're very suspicious of outside organizations, NGOs, police, who they bribe. Um, and they're very wary of letting certain people in. And so I was very lucky to work with Jivika to have a firsthand experience speaking with these men and women, but it's not common and not easy. So when you did your, your 65 or so interviews, you actually spoke to some, some of the people that were, uh, that were subject to the sex trafficking? Unfortunately, no. That would be a lot harder to do. Mm, yeah, um, yeah. And I, that, those were the organizations I really wanted to work with. But again, being a 15-year-old girl, looking back on it now, I wouldn't want to go into the Red District yeah. in Mumbai. I mean, that's terrifying. Even just writing about it was terrifying. Um, I mean, obviously my books are about the horrifying stories and realities in India, but human trafficking is a huge issue in the US. I actually just went to a movie last weekend in Thousand Oaks that talks about human trafficking of foster youth. 
in Los Angeles. And it's so easy for young boys and girls, even in the US, to be trafficked. And it's often by people they already know. Mm. And so it's an issue that everyone should be aware of. I know with my novels, people often feel that it's so distant, how can they help? But it's an issue that's real for all of us in our own backyard. San Francisco is one of the highest rates for human trafficking in the US. And so if you're interested in the issue, get interested in it locally as well. Okay. Um, How many states are there in India and does each state have its own government? There are 28 states. Each state has their own language or multiple, which is another reason that when people cross borders, it's really hard for them to get home because they're surrounded by people who don't speak their language. Um, And there is one central government, but there's a lot of local government within each state. So I talked about like the district magistrates um, by village, by it's not county, but it's a little bit different than it is here. Um, There is a lot more done locally than there is federally. Are the governments, are the state governments basically paid off to, so that these that the slave labor and sex trafficking can continue? I would say that on the state and federal level, no, but locally, hands down. Corruption is the biggest reason that this is still allowed to happen. And on top of that, the actual consequence for when a human trafficker is caught is a couple hundred dollars. I mean, ridiculously low. So if you want to dissuade people from getting into this business, maybe have a consequence that would prevent them from doing so, not just a slap on the wrist and then they just get back out there. Are your books sold in India? Technically, they can be sold in multiple countries because they're on Amazon. And so Amazon has distributors in Europe and India. Um, Interestingly enough, though, speaking about this in India is even harder because people get very defensive about what's going on in their own country. Some people are very aware of it and others, I remember talking to someone at the embassy in Delhi and trying to speak to him about this issue. And this was when I was doing the research, like right afterwards. And he basically told me that if this is true, which one, I know it was because I had just spoken with all these men and women. Uh He said, well, it's actually probably for the best because at least they're getting food and shelter, which they probably weren't before. And I was like, did you just try to justify slavery? Wow. Yeah. Wow. Uh, You've mentioned Jivika a number of times. Are there any other organizations like them? Is there any kind of movement or momentum to, to get more people involved to stop this? There are a lot of international organizations like the International Justice Mission, Free the Slaves, um, who do a lot of amazing work in a lot of countries where they, similarly to Jivika, actually go in and help pull these people out. But I wouldn't say there's a mass movement because Uh, if there was, you probably would have heard about it. Okay. Okay. So since you've done your research and written your two books, you've gone to college and you're now a special ed ed teacher in in Oakland. Uh, You said your second year. Do you have time, inclination, interest in, in pursuing this? I mean, what would you even do moving forward? 
I think my goal is to be very successful and accumulate a lot of wealth so I can create a nonprofit and just give all of my money away. That would be the dream. Um, but I, I do plan on attending law school and being a human rights lawyer, um, maybe working for the United Nations, but there's also just a lot of amazing work that is done on the ground. Um, I'm excited to go to law school next year because they have a lot of programs where you can actually represent victims of human trafficking in countries like Rwanda and Guatemala or survivors of domestic violence. And so I'm really interested at tackling it from a legal lens, even though I've seen how our legal system can be very complicated and bureaucratic. Yeah. But um, I, I think spreading awareness is something that I'll be doing for the rest of my life. Uh, have you already been accepted to a law school? I was accepted to UC Hastings with uh, a scholarship, which is in San uh, Francisco. Um, and I'm okay. still waiting to hear back from a few other law schools. Oh, Hastings is a great school. I'm very excited. Oh, that's great. So you would start basically in August. Yeah, very and, soon. And will you continue to teach? No, this will be my last few months okay. teaching. So you'll do three years daytime like a regular law school student. Mm -hmm. uh, I did four years at night. Uh, because oh, wow. I yeah because I didn't get into day so <laughs> so that might so, be an option for me too we don't know <laughs> you'll get in uh, all right I I'm gonna backtrack a little bit uh, we don't have much time left and uh, uh, listeners if you were gonna wait for some trivia don't uh, this is too important to deal with literary trivia tonight but there'll be some the next uh, the next one. Uh, Tell us about the publication process of your book. Um, it was definitely the most difficult part of this process for me because I was trying to publish it as a senior in high school and I you know, was dealing with applying to college and classes and sports. And I originally found a literary agent who I thought could help me. And she was amazing and read my books and gave me great advice, but she ended up leaving the industry. And so I was kind of starting from ground zero. Um, and at a point it came for me, I was just so busy. I didn't have time to pitch it to publishing houses and go through that process. So I found out that I could self-publish and I did this on Amazon, which was amazing for me because I don't have to buy inventory of books up hand. I can just show people the website, the link, and they can uh, get it delivered to them within three business days. And it's also on Kindle now. Um, and I have sold it in a few bookstores because I've done a few speeches um, just in Los Angeles and the Bay Area. But I think self-publishing was definitely the right way to go for me because it allowed me to stay in control and not have to worry about um, being a full-time author and promoting and publishing. Has there been anything that's happened that has increased the awareness of the book as well as the issues? I think just um, events and opportunities to speak like tonight, just getting the word out, um, working with schools and trying to have them, uh, the English teachers have my book part of the curriculum was one of my main goals. I'm actually trying to get students at my current school to read it because when I originally wrote this book, I wrote it for middle schoolers because that's the age that I began writing them. That's the age of my characters. And it's also the age where young adults really start learning about the issues and current events in this world and are really passionate to create change. I think after a certain age, I've noticed um, people just don't have as much time 
to dedicate to learning about these issues. And the middle school, high school age is just a group that I really wanted to target and will probably continue trying to spread awareness to. It does seem that anything younger than middle middle uh, grade or middle school is going to be too young. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's such rough stuff. Uh, do you foresee writing any more books about this or anything else? So I'm actually uh, writing a third book with a co-author um, who I met at the University of Southern California. She has an incredible story, and I interviewed her as a journalism student, and she said that a few news companies had asked to write her story for her, but she didn't trust them. So she asked me to personally write her book. And so she is now my co-author. She grew up in Los Angeles in the foster care system, uh. was in and out of group homes, in and out of juvenile hall, was actually a survivor of sex trafficking in Los Angeles. She ended up leaving the foster care system at 18 and was homeless for a few years. And was suicidal and then she found out she was pregnant and it changed her life. She completely turned her life around and ended up hiring a private investigator to find her real family and went to community college. Uh, her school counselor inspired her to apply to USC where she just graduated from with her master's in public policy. Um, only 1% of children who go through the foster care system and leave at 18 go on to grad school. So she is part of that 1%. And she has a nonprofit where she goes and teaches law enforcement and talks at group homes about her experience and spreads awareness to try and prevent them from ending up in situations such as trafficking. And I just feel so grateful that she's given me the opportunity to listen to her story and write it. Uh, I'm still in the process of writing it as I'm a bit busy as a teacher currently, <laughs> but hopefully this summer I will pick it back up. Have you heard of a book called The Language of Flowers? No. By Vanessa Diffenbaugh. You definitely want to read it and you want to go on her website okay. because it is the story of an 18-year-old girl who ages out of foster care and, and what happens with her. But Vanessa actually has a website and and I don't remember all the details, but she ended up um, adopting two foster care kids. Oh, wow. It's an, um, she, she's amazing, and, it's a, and, and I think the two of you would, would get along well. No, I definitely have to read that book and reach out to her. Yeah, um, I describe it as a fiction that reads like nonfiction. That's, that's what I'm going for, too. Yeah, that, I think that's fantastic. We're out of time, which I'm a little sad about, to be honest with you. I think this has been absolutely amazing. Uh, I'm so appreciative of you coming down, and I can't wait for however many listeners listen to this thing or, or now can view it, seeing, seeing and hearing the story. It's, it's, it's absolutely crazy. Uh, for those who are interested, they can go on Lloyd.show, um, and that way you can get the... Um, uh, you can get the, the podcast. Uh, if you do Lloyd.show slash YouTube, you can see it live. Not live, of course, but you can see it rather than just listen to it. Uh, and feel free to subscribe to, uh, to the podcast. We don't always, always get authors as interesting as, as Chandra. It's an amazing story, and, and I'm so grateful that you came down to do this with, uh, with me. 
Thank you so much for having me on the show and just giving me the opportunity to spread awareness and speak more about my story. Thank you. And again, thanks to KCAT, uh, not only for the radio side of it, but also for the TV side of it. Uh, they do an amazing job with my show as well as others. And uh, and I'm, I'm thankful that, uh, that I'm a part of it. So that's it, people. Uh, we'll see you next time. You just heard Lit with Lloyd here on KCAT Radio. Explore all our KCAT original programming at kcat.org radio. Thank you.